2: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. I'm actually thinking now we need a new
1: party of the right. Four.
3: Labour agree with more of the (laughs) mini-budget than the
1: Tories now. (laughs) Three. I do not understand why what is really about 10% of the population politically is controlling everything.
0: Your podcast kept me and a lot of people close to me sane.
3: One. I didn't even say it. (laughs) And welcome once again to Planet Normal, live from Savoy Place in London. This is the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. (laughs) Here it comes Hello <laughs> And me, Liam Halligan, we will get on yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is the 120th trip to Planet Normal And it's our second live event You take a couple of weeks off, Alison And your co-pilot berth, ably filled by Telegraph columnist Nick, Nick Timothy well. And the wheels fall off the Conservative <laughs> Party And it seems the entire country When we hosted our last live Planet Normal event back in May, Boris Johnson was Prime Minister and Labour and the Tories were neck and neck in the opinion polls. A fortnight ago, Alison, as you began your short Planet Normal sabbatical, we were on for £45 billion worth of tax cuts, courtesy of Kwasi Kwarteng's rather unfortunately named mini-budget, with the Tories trying to reverse just a 20-point deficit in the polls. Now we have a £32 billion package of tax rises thanks to new Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, Swala Braveman's out as Foreign Secretary... Chancellor? I thought he was Prime Minister. And, <laughs> and Labour are shouting about a 30-point poll lead. Not that Labour are shouting or even talking about anything, of course, at the moment, because, to paraphrase Napoleon Bonaparte, never interrupt your enemy when they're making lots of mistakes. <laughs> This is Planet Normal, Alison, our sanctuary of sweet reason, our beloved rocket. It's the flying refuge of reasoned views. But as we look down on the madness of planet Earth, what are we to make of it? The Tories, well-versed in regicide, of course, seem to be shifting to suicide. (laughs) Liz Truss was still Prime Minister last time I checked, although the night is young. Surely, though, Alison, she'll soon be out on her ear.
2: Oh, God. Yeah, I go away for two weeks, come back, and it's a a post-apocalyptic Mad Max wasteland, thanks to co-pilot Halligan. So I thought we'd start with a bit of good news um, after all this um, chaos. So the good news is, by popular acclaim, co-pilot Halligan will become November's Chancellor of the Exchequer.
3: (laughs) They can't afford me.
2: We're hoping to persuade our our lovely guest David Frost to be December's Chancellor of (laughs) the Exchequer. I'm pleased to announce that applications are now open as of about three hours ago for the post of Home Secretary, but nobody can apply who um, agrees any longer with any of the uh, contents of the Conservative Party manifesto for 2019, just to to make that clear. Right, so let's start, Halligan. Liz Truss has been Prime Minister for 44 days and is less popular than Prince Andrew. (laughs) I know you know this uh, mini budget back to front. I just want to quote from your Sunday Telegraph column. You said um, the mini budget. Nobody reads it. Special occasion. The mini budget's policies, which cost the Chancellor quasi-quoting his job. Were mainstream and entirely reasonable. Kwasi Kwarteng's proposals were dubbed uh, radical, libertarian, even grossly irresponsible. But that demonstrably um, isn't true, or is untrue. Well, can you can you say can you exp- first of all, if it was if they were demonstrably reasonable, why have they effectively you know why has Teng had to go, and why is the government in absolute chaos, and why did the markets go bonkers?
3: I think it's a combination of timing and volume and presentation and handling of the policies rather than the policies themselves which I'll go through. I also think in terms of the markets, what we've seen, the mini-budget was the catalyst rather than the underlying cause of what's happening on the markets. What's happening on the markets is happening globally though of course Westminster correspondents can't see beyond uh, the North Circular Road. Um, all, All All advanced industrialised countries are suffering from inflation. We're actually below average uh, and interest rates are rising across the world as we see this unwind of this huge policy error sustained, which is quantitative quantitative easing. Let's go through some of the policies. So lowering the top rate of tax from 45 to 40 is not some stripped-down Hayekian universe. This is the top rate of tax under Blair and Brown, until the last two weeks of Brown when he raised it to 50. To just bo- to, to
2: booby trap it. Yeah, basically.
3: just, to, just yeah. to send the P- Tory party insane when they tried to lower it. And he is the biggest winner politically out, out of this. 40% is not unreasonable. The timing of the 40%, though, I do think was politically tin-eared going into a winter where a lot of people are worried about making ends meet. You should lower from 45 to 40 at 150 grand when, com- when the country's feeling flush not when it's feeling economically scared. Freezing corporation tax at 19%. It's 12.5% in the Republic of Ireland. 19% is not particularly unusual in the UK's history, but raising corporation tax to 25% is taking 6% off the margin of many of our small and medium-sized firms who were hammered during lockdown. Can I I just make
2: one of my... um increasingly astute economic interventions.
3: I've created this monster. She keeps, t- you know, she's don't you understand? And then she says something I wrote like three weeks ago. No, I never, 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 never thought of that. I think we just, can
2: we just have the delicious observation here that uh, when he was competing to be Conservative leader not that long ago, Prime Minister Hunt had us reducing corporation tax to 15%. Yeah. So what a difference three months makes, because he's now supporting all the... He was the biggest tax cutter of any of the candidates for the Tory leadership.
3: That's right. right. So if you take 6% off the margin of a lot of small companies who were hammered during lockdown, you're going to wipe out those companies. Big companies did really well during lockdown. You know, Tesco and Sainsbury's, they were open. They had a monopoly because all the corner shops... We're closed, of course, and small companies disproportionately drive our economy. It's three quarters of employment, family-run businesses. The UK is really good at this kind of thing. We talk about the German Mittelstadt, but they drive our economy mm. too. And it's, it's politically inept to hammer them at a time like this with that corporation tax rise, in my view. And I anyway think that a higher corporation tax... Will lead to less actual revenue. That's what happened. Uh, That's what's happened in, in the past. And then I guess, why did the markets get really upset? The markets got really upset because they were spooked not by anything in the mini budget that people are talking about, but the big thing in the mini budget that people aren't talking about that's the completely open ended government liability, which is the energy price cap because it depends entirely the cost of that on where wholesale gas goes over the next six to 12 months and that of course depends on geopolitics because if you're going to deliver a guaranteed unit cost of electricity wherever the wholesale cost is and the government's got to subsidize that the government doesn't know how much so that's one reason because the UK because we have a lack of gas storage, we're particularly vulnerable to big price rises during this winter. That's just a fact. Um, so that's one reason the, the markets were concerned about about the UK's fiscal policy. But I think the real reason it happened then is because traders could see that the top rate of tax was inept politically, timing-wise. They could see that the broadcasters were going to go absolutely nuts uh, and give a weak prime minister with limited backing among mm-hmm. our own backbenches a, a, yeah. a real kicking. And then as a former sort of currency financial person myself... You can see you can set up a doom loop. If you go short sterling, and then you know the media is going to go nuts, so sterling comes down more, then you just double down and you double down, and you end up with a, a self-reinforcing downward spiral, and that's when sterling went all the way down to $1. $.3. But we should be absolutely clear. the big bump on the bond market upwards in government borrowing was when the Bank of England failed to increase interest rates by 0.75 <laughs> percent) having, having, having signalled that they would, completely inept signalling um, that they did that. And then they said, when they could see that borrowing costs were spiralling and they could see that sterling was falling, they said, oh, and by the way, we're going to carry on with this quantitative tightening, putting more bonds into the market at exactly the wrong time for the government, just as they said as soon as Jeremy Hunt stepped in that they were going to stop that, so borrowing costs fall and everyone thinks Jeremy Hunt's a genius. So mm. I, don't, I, I don't think the Bank of England in, is a particularly passive bystander, an even-handed bystander in this at all. And I thought that the, the statement from Andrew Bailey, who's been way behind the curve on, on inflation mm. for, uh, for, for, been, for a you, long time, been the statement saying. from Andrew Bailey when Hunt came in, we had an immediate meeting of minds... That's not what you say once a Chancellor's been sacked and a new Chancellor's stay. You don't say anything for weeks.
2: No. You've been saying, haven't you, Mr Callaghan, Mr. regular listeners will know, you've been saying for well over a year that the Bank of England's claim that inflation was transitory was absolute nonsense and that they needed to be um, in- in- increasing interest rates, haven't you?
3: Well, anyone has who understands. You could see it in the swaps and the spreads. You could see it in, in, in futures markets. It, it was entirely. You could see it. Just surmise that we're in lockdown, and when we come out of lockdown, logistically, the world is going to take a long time to reboot, and there's going to be a wall of demand as as people emerge.
2: But the, out of that, now we've got the you know the huge kind of financial conflagration, out of which has then come this. Unprecedented political chaos, hasn't it? I mean, U-turn doesn't even—it doesn't even begin. I've never seen a prime. You
3: bend, maybe. You bend exactly. <laughs>
2: has a has a prime minister ever been so humiliated? In office now, I think the background to this is quite interesting. People will remember that in the Conservative leadership contest, we had various candidates. Some of the polls suggested that if uh, Penny Mordant who I supported, or Kemi Badenoch, also very popular, if they got through to the members, the members would probably choose yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it was we heard that Rishi Sunak's team were very keen that Liz Truss should go through because they thought she wasn't up and to so it. So they
3: say that they basically lent her votes
2: we couldn't possibly comment yeah. but anyway she got through but they never wanted her to be there did they mm-hmm. so they have they are very bad losers that's all i can say i mean i've got to feel a lot of uh, disgust and repugnance at the moment for these people but i you know to to allow someone to become the prime minister and then basically be waiting for your chance the chance came early, didn't it, yeah. with the bad timing of, of yeah. that of that mini-budget. Um, but I guess now there is a real concern. I think people are asking... You, you, again, listeners will know I'm really allergic to conspiracy theories. I hate them. But <laughs> Jeremy Hunt announced at the dispatch box that it wasn't enough to have the Office of Business Responsibility. We were now going to have a new cabal of, um, of hedge fund chaps called Rupert who were going to be... who were who, The finest kind. The finest kind, who we're going to be having a say. Rupert Harrison, who works at BlackRock with George Osborne. Liam, could any British government coming in now cut taxes or do we need approval from people we don't know about?
3: I agree with you about the... This new economic council, it's just ex-MPC people, ex-monetary policy committee people, and the usual suspects. It's, it's group thinking, incarnate. We need to have in our policy-making establishment people of, of massive intellect and diversity of opinion and experience and outlook, that's what an independent central bank should be. And in fairness to New Labour, when the Monetary Policy Committee was founded in 1997, the external members were very serious people. They were, they were derided because they were slightly strange. You had the economist Willem Boiter, you had Deanne Julius, who'd been um, chief economist at Bank of England. The, these, were, these were people who had the intellectual standing to say to establishment goons, no, we don't agree, and this is why we don't agree, and you're going to have to have a really good argument if you're, you're going to change our mind about, about this. Look, policymaking is uncertain, particularly when you're trying to forecast... Uh, inflation and, and set interest rates and so on. But I think with the exception of, of Sushil Wadwani, who is a serious person, who Jeremy Hunt appointed, he was an NPC member from that era. Um, but the others are, are, are place men and women, I, I would suggest. And the problem is, Alison, that the Bank of England, it's not... The problem isn't that you have an independent Bank of England. The problem is that the Bank of England in recent years hasn't been independent enough because the external members of the nine-strong MPC, the appointment of them has basically been corralled by the Treasury. So they've all been people of lesser intellect and without that kind of uh, intellectual and academic authority to make their own decisions and to ha- give the Bank of England serious credibility. And then they lost credibility by going on endlessly that inflation was transitory when it clearly wasn't. And then some disastrous signalling to the market. Kept, kept It started under Mark Carney... Um, um, he kept saying we will raise interest rates when unemployment hits this point, and then he didn't. He got the unreliable boyfriend, and then and then that, that's literally I'm, what the I'm market, a really
2: bad picker, that, aren't that, I? Really, that, that, they're,
3: they're, they're falling that, like That's them. literally what the markets called him, um, uh, and then and then repeatedly signalling that they were going to raise interest rates so sterling would go up to act as an anti-inflationary crutch, and then you lose money because the interest rate rise that you've signalled doesn't come. So then you don't believe the bank anymore so you trade hard downwards and short and you have to raise interest rates more in order to get back to where you were. It strikes me that I mean, you know, Eddie George was a great man. I was lucky to know Eddie George as a mm. young journalist and we had a shared interest in Russia. I used to spend a lot of time talking to him. Mervyn King as a grammar school boy from Wolverhampton, much derided... Former
2: guest on Planet
3: o. Much derided by the kind of the city traders and and, and and the snooty journalists. But he really cared about institutions and he was willing to be unpopular. And by the way, he was willing to seriously regulate and even split the banks up, Glass-Steagall style, which I think should definitely happen. Um if, if you're into sort of weird policy things, um, though it's not weird, since Glass-Steagall was repealed, we've had endless, I think endless we should, crises. Do you
2: think we, I think that, so that whole, you know, the sort of financial turmoil which has allowed this opportunity now for what yeah. some people are calling a coup, yeah. some people are calling it a remainer coup, it certainly seems to be, I haven't used since A-level history the word schism, but Ooh. there. As
3: that, in the great schism. The
2: great schism. Ooh. The Tory party schism of 2022. So um, we've seen a conservative
3: government... What other so, words haven't you used since A-levels? <laughs> here, here's an A-level word. Thus. <laughs> Every full sentence had started <laughs> with thus. yes, yes. <laughs> right, Therefore. Um, it's a sine qua non. <laughs> it is a sine qua non.
2: Um, don't let's go into A-level grades. Once he starts telling you his A-level grades, we'll be here all night. I Yes, we did get ones at S level as well. I know we did. Um, yeah, so that th- this has now, the Conservative Party, which obviously has been vaguely holding together, but Liz Truss coming in. Somehow, uh, Jeremy Hunt, I'm told that we're supposed to find the arrival of Jeremy Hunt reassuring. <laughs> I don't find someone who was the most ardent advocate of zero COVID yeah. in yeah. any way reassuring.
3: So, Alison, do no, you, no, you, you like Matty Tories.
2: Well, yeah, well, not, no. not this one. So there's a video, I don't know if anyone's seen it, there's a video of Jeremy Hunt being interviewed and he says his sister was flown back to Beijing, put in a car and taken to her flat and sealed into her flat and you were waiting for the moment where he says, and that's an abomination, but he seems quite keen on yeah. the idea. I'd be very keen for Jeremy Hunt to be taken to a flat and sealed in for the, for the, for the, for the duration. Um, so, so this guy, this guy who came bottom of the in the Tory leadership race, yeah! is it, now it was eighth or something. Eighth. He was eighth.
3: Didn't bother the scorers.
2: He didn't. He's now holding. I mean, I know, not just Chancellor of the Exchequer, yeah. but uh, ju- judging by that terrible scene we saw earlier uh, this week when he was announcing all the U-turns that he had been making, overturning his alleged bosses. Policies one by one, and I described it in my Telegraph column today, it was like an Ofsted inspector putting Liz Truss into special measures (laughs) and uh, humiliating her in front of... I mean, you had a good way of describing what she looked like, didn't you?
3: you I wasn't going to say that on stage. You can. (laughs) Come on, let's be fair, I thought she was on much better form today. I mean, after Prime Minister's questions today, I thought, good on you, you know? And I thought, hang about... British people like an underdog. They like fighters, She's, and when she used the Peter Mandelson line, "I'm a fighter and not, not a, quitter, a quitter," though she didn't burst into tears like Peter Mandelson mm. did. Yeah. Um, I thought, hang about, maybe there could be something happening here. But then, you know, a couple of hours later, you had the absolute hammer blow that she just lost her home secretary in kind of strange
2: well, not, circumstances. Well, not not lost. So let's let's be let's be brutal here. We've had a Conservative government sacking a Conservative chancellor for cutting taxes, mm-hmm. uh, an activity. Labour
3: agree with more of the mini-budget La- than the Tories now.
2: <laughs> Labour supported a lot of that yeah, mini-budget, did, yeah, didn't they, did. they? Absolutely. And then, of course, today, um, I was on the train when I saw it flash up that Soella Braverman has gone as Home Secretary. There's some cock and bull story about her having sent something uh, secret or something, isn't there? We know why she's been... Well, she's quit. Did you, has she quit or was she sacked? Uh, Trust wants I this... I don't know,
3: but I know a bloke who might know, and he's on stage...
2: He's on stage in a minute. If we're very nice to him, he might tell us. But, uh, yeah, so Suella Braverman. And I was incredibly upset, Liam, when I heard that. And the reason I'm upset is because I think Suella Braverman is my kind of conservative. I mean, it's a broad church, hopefully. Um, she's already standing up to the police saying you're going to stop investigating spurious hate crimes online and go and invest bloody burglaries, which is what and I would say Suella Braverman not only is, uh, rep, uh, is an articulate advocate for most Conservative members, she speaks to a huge amount of the Conservative Party in the country and above all perhaps, she um, absolutely speaks for the, conserva- for the voters in the Red Wall, the Labour voters in the Red Wall who back Brexit. She's a brexiteer she wants to hold down net immigration and it looks like she's got into a fight with liz trust because liz trust wants to sign this indian trade deal and it seems that india is pushing for an enormous number of visas and this government this conservative government which is supposed to be committed in its manifesto to holding down net immigration last year gave a million visas okay a million visas to overseas visitors at a time when we have a hospital waiting list of 7 million people we cannot let many more people in but I just thought I'd read because this is a devastating for for Liz Truss, one of many devastating this is Suella Braverman's um, resignation letter obviously everyone wrote it (laughs) I don't Obviously, everyone, we're going through a tumultuous time. I have concerns about the direction of this government. Not only have we broken key pledges that were promised to our voters, but I have serious concerns about the government's commitment to honouring manifesto commitments, such as reducing overall migration members and stopping illegal migration, particularly the dangerous small boats crossings. Now, that, that, that's a schism, isn't it?
3: That's, that's, that's a very muscular Piece of writing in a sort of resignation moment from one of the great officers of state. That 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 says to me, this is there's going to be some afters here. This is unfinished business, and I and I think there will be. So is it a a war? Is it a war? Well, it's amazing we got this far into our our monologue, and it's actually I can say it's, it's really weird. Doing this in the same room as Alison because the only time we've ever done Planet Normal it's in the same room was, was the other live event. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you're usually in your in your, in your tracksuit, you? <laughs> 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 um, yeah, and I'm usually holed up in a corner of GB News. GB News, um, you are trying to yeah. escape because yeah. "Quick, go on air, go on air!" But it's amazing we got this far, and we haven't mentioned the fact that at PMQ today, uh, I think, I think that the Prime Minister in a corner came out fighting and tried to bounce the Chancellor into maintaining the triple, the triple lock, lock, which is an £11.4 billion bounce. That's big money. And they just about managed to hold the line together with journalists were claiming, I've got people in the, in the hunt camp. Be careful I say that.
0: <laughs>
3: See, I'm a professional broadcaster. <laughs> I don't make those Jim Noctis schoolboy (laughs) errors. Um, Don't don't say it again. Yeah, I won't. won't. (laughs) Pink elephant, pink elephant. Um, (laughs) We just about got to the point where people in the Chancellor of the Exchequer's uh, camp weren't confirming that he didn't actually know that was... There was was about 20 minutes where they weren't confirming whether or not the Chancellor knew that was going to happen or not. So clearly some kind of deal was done because... In our mad system, in our unwritten constitution, the way it works mm. is, you know, there's off, obviously tension between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. Between number 10 and number 11, there always will be... A Not li- like this. And there always should be. But if you have open warfare at the dispatch box, yeah. you know, two days into the new arrangement, then that is incendiary and it's completely unsustainable.
2: I would have had more respect for Truss if she'd stood up and said... Basically, I'm a hostage. Come on then if you think you're hard enough. I, I'm a hostage of the technocrats, basically. I wanted to do certain things. I wanted to promote growth in the United Kingdom. They're not letting me do it. I now resign and just walked out. That would have been so that would have been so great. You know. Instead how how can she go on, Liam? She can't it's ex well, it's ex- I started
3: by asking you the question, will she soon be out on her ear?
2: I I well They are they are paralysed. We'll talk to Lord Frost about this. What can they? Yeah, he's here. What can they do? Because they want to put Rishi Sunak in. You talk to any Conservative member; they just are frothing at the mouth about this. Um, So, what are they going to do? Are they going to do? I I. Look, I think it's so bad. I think I suggested a, a compromise in my column this morning, mm. got shouted down, obviously, by the readers. But I think if you put Penny, Mordaunt and Rishi, it wouldn't be ideal. At least it would look like a, a sane, orderly group of people. Um, it's it's not ideal. But what are they going to do? Or reject... What does anyone think? General election? I don't know. What, another one?
3: <laughs> Said Brenda from Bristol.
2: And until, and until this afternoon, I thought we mustn't have a general election because... The because you're busy. Later, the Conservative Party will be destroyed. Enough to
3: do before Christmas. I've got oh, enough to it? do before
2: Christmas. I try to get a week
3: yeah. in Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have a general election.
2: What I was going to say before I was so rudely interrupted is I'm getting to the tipping point where I don't care if the Conservative Party is destroyed. That's how. That's how bad. That's how bad it is really. What do you think, Halligan? What do you think? What? Do you think she can? Do you think she can, uh, you know, limp on?
3: I think they may do what they did to Theresa May, which is constrain her um, and squeeze her, and for a while, because I just think it looks so disorderly to have four chancellors in as many months. We're, we're the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. The world is watching. And I go I go back to something that Norman Lamont said to me uh, on last week's Planet Normal. Hi. I think it's a really, really good point, and I'm surprised more people haven't picked it up. A lot of this carnage and chaos is coming from the fact that all you need is 15% of the Conservative Parliamentary Party to spark a leadership election, effectively... And that is far too low because there are always going to be periods in uh, the office, particularly during tough economic times, when a prime minister has to do things that his or her backbenchers really don't like. That's called leadership. That's called using the midterm sag mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. difficult but necessary things done and then, you know, tossing up your offering for the voters before an election. It's it's, it's cynical and it's, it's not pretty. But to paraphrase Churchill, it's the, it's the worst possible system except for all the others, right? Mm, mm, and, and, mm. And, and, and I really think that, you know, we we, we we so often say that Ed Miliband's, you know, three-pound membership rule changes were yeah. mad because they let Corbyn and McDonnell in, and they got within 10,000 votes of running the country, by the way. If you took 10,000 votes and sprinkled them a, a, across certain constituencies... Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's about 9,650, yeah, similar. Obviously, didn't read my book. Anyway.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. So everyone talks about those Miliband rules, which were, of course, insane. But I think just as insane and probably of bigger long-term implication and damage is the notion that all you need is 15% of Tory MPs. I mean, when you've got so many ex-ministers and overlooked ministers and pissed-off people on the back benches, then it's inevitable that almost anyone... Is going to be out on their ear. But it's almost ungovernable. Theory, and, then, and that's, you know. You know you in can...
2: theory, it, they're not supposed to have
3: another uh, prime yeah, minister for a everyone, year, every, are they? Everyone knows that's just a, a fig leaf, isn't it? All oh, the rule changes are this, unless the count, you know, the committee decides to change the rules. It's just it's nonsense. Mm. That's why May had to go because the committee was about to change the rules. There's, the, 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 the year-long thing was meant to be the check and balance against the fifteen percent, but we've got the fifteen percent, which is as Norman Lamont rightly says. Re, did he say extremely low? He said, I think I think I said ridiculously low, but I know he thinks it's ridiculously low without the the year long the year long gap and and those rules need to be changed you know it should be 50% at least of the parliamentary party
2: but it, but it's not it's not it's not plausible so tonight I I don't know if anyone's got the results but there was this big vote on fracking which the government was announcing was going to be a you know, a confidence vote in the government. So Tory uh, MPs were going to be under a three-line whip. And just as we were coming out on stage, Lord Frost said to us, oh, they've suddenly decided it's not a, a vote of confidence on the government because they think they're going to sustain some serious damage. Right. You've actually effectively got guerrilla warfare yeah. going on in your own party. Has anyone seen Rishi Sunak, by the way? He's been keeping a... He's been hiding behind... the like cat. He's McCavity's cat, isn't he? So he... The, he look they want to get him in they are desperately trying to think of a way that won't look grotesquely undemocratic and I don't think there is one do you I mean I don't know I've gone from thinking we can't have a general election to thinking we'll bring it on really you know what? I don't know does anyone
3: we're going to hold that thought because we're going to we're going to move on we, we never script Planet Normal, we just sort of have a list of who could words. tell. Who could tell? <laughs> uh, but we just wanted to mention, didn't we, Alison? Well, we also want to he's... say
2: one of the great heroes of Planet Normal is George, mm. um, our source within NHS England. Uh, and, and, and George. Who but, is among us? Who is among us?
3: He or she is among us? He or she
2: is among us. Yes, this is the only time I'm uh, prepared. Don't look, don't look. To, only time I'm prepared to use the word they is for George, not <laughs> them.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, <laughs> but regulars will know that George put their career on the line oh, yeah. many, many times, and was providing fantastic and accurate hospital yeah. data, which somehow mysteriously the chief medical officer Chris Whitty could never quite yeah. lay his hands on. George,
3: the Stig of healthcare statistics. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's true. It's true. You're yeah. going to use that. I'm cool. going to use that. Yes, I am. Absolutely. No, we're, we're getting there. We're getting we there. Are. Okay. Absolutely. Now, here on Planet Normal, our guests are revered stowaways. They tend to be writers, thinkers, campaigners, those who, a bit like Alison and myself, tend to operate beyond the corridors of power. (laughs) But every now and then, we invite onto the rocket of right thinking a big political beast. Lord Frost was known, until relatively recently, mainly to Whitehall and Westminster insiders, but then Boris Johnson appointed him as the UK's chief Brexit negotiator back in January 2020, and he became a household name. What's he like? My mum asked me. (laughs) In December 2021, Lord Frost resigned from government. He admired Johnson, he said, in his characteristically polite but firm resignation letter. But he couldn't support what was then called Plan B, the tightening of anti-Covid restrictions. And since then, this quietly spoken man with a razor-sharp mind, a Big Planet Normal fan, by the way... Yes. Yes. Has written a regular Telegraph column and plied his trade in the upper house, remaining a man of considerable political influence. So let's welcome to the cockpit with a warm, planet normal welcome, Lord David Frost. So, David, I hope you enjoyed that sycophantic introduction. My, my, my usual fee, and can I please be paid in, in Bitcoin? Because I'm a bit concerned. Let's start with what's most pressing. Um, and then we'll move on to you know, your background, your life. I'm sure a lot of people want to know more about you.
0: Um, Suela Brevman, were you surprised? Uh, no, I wasn't. I must admit, I think um, not that I I had any uh, warning about the issue, but it just seems to me the logic of the situation. We've we've got a government that for the last few days has been pursuing a policy that is completely different from the one it was chosen on. And if you're a minister who you think you're pursuing one policy and all of a sudden you're doing something else, well... You're going to consider your position, and I bet she's not the only one.
3: Your use of the word "logic" <laughs> was it ironic? <laughs> In the current climate, I mean, uh, it's it's just crazy what's happening.
0: I mean, I I, I can't think of a word for it. I, I, I'm appalled. I think there are astonished. words. But we're not cluster. To... Cluster. <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, I just I I I can't believe it. I can't believe the way that um, what I thought. Uh, I was voting for in supporting Liz Truss, however misguidedly it now seems. Um, I, I just can't believe that that has been overturned overnight, and all of a sudden we're back to Osbornomics and continuity Philip Hammond view of the world, and it's all it's all gone. I just find it incredible, really.
2: Um. We heard a delightful rumour that one reason you made your principled walk out of the Cabinet was being armed with facts you had heard on our own podcast. Is, is, that, is there any truth in that? Please well, you, you th- say yes.
0: This, it, it is. <laughs> it's sort of truth. If you don't say yes, um, the interview's <laughs> over, mate. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, your podcast kept me and a lot of people close to me sane during the oh, crazy... Yeah, very kind. The whole... I, I mean, I think my experience is not unusual. I think, you know, a lot of us felt, um, like, distracted, uh, kind of disconnected from what was going on. It felt extremely strange. And th- I, it was just so good to hear people who were kind of connected to some sort of real world and giving different information and making me think that there's another way. So, uh, you know, I was in the Cabinet, for goodness sake. Yes. So. Wow. Uh, there-
2: you did write something that we sort of deduced, which is that Boris was quite minded to take a stand against some of these measures, wasn't he? Do you look back and think, uh, it, had he not been very ill himself, that things might have been different? And, and, and do you think that fundamentally, he, you know, he's a freedom-loving guy, isn't he? <laughs>
0: I, I don't know whether his illness uh, played a part in it. I, I, I'm not sure I saw any difference before mm. and after myself. I think, um, you know, Boris, his, he was always best... When he trusted his own judgment about things, mm. and unfortunately, my feeling was he was far too often talked out of doing the right thing by some of the people around him who he thought were cleverer and knew more than he did and usually they weren't, and usually they didn't, but mm. he still went along with it and I think if we'd seen more of the real Boris, we probably wouldn't have got into this this mess.
2: I have to say that a very dear friend of mine is in the audience tonight i won't I won't identify her, but most nights she texts me in a plaintive way. Can I have my Boris back yet? <laughs> uh, you don't think there's there's no possibility he could come, you know. I mean, as Liam said before he went, we thought being five points behind in the polls it was a disaster. And now now? are I think now the Tory, the, the poll of polls show that the Tories are due to come force behind the SNP, isn't that right? Yeah. You don't think there's any way he could be persuaded out of. Um,
0: I. I, I... I doubt it. I think it's the honest answer. I mean, uh, I'm sure we haven't seen the last of him in, in various ways. I'm absolutely no. sure about that. But, um, you know, he had to go for a reason. And I think uh, that was, unfortunately, quite a good reason. Um, but, uh, you know, I think he is... You know, Ahmed Amara He's one of the most consequential prime ministers this country has ever had. He did something that... Um, did. Lots of people said it was impossible. And he's got his place in history, whatever happens. yes. I want to ask you if you think Brexit could be lost. Just
3: mull that and we'll come back to that minor issue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but before we do, you, you back Liz Truss. And I think I would say her backing was... Your backing of her was pretty important. Uh, you backed her. The ERG came on side and basically anointed her within the parliamentary party to at least get over the line and then I think a lot of the Conservative Party in the country noticed that you had backed her Um, she's obviously a very bright person and she's a very ambitious person Why do you think she made the fundamental mistakes that she did? Or indeed, do you think there were fundamental mistakes about the mini budget in terms of timing and scope Mm. and the speed with which she tried to throw so many things
0: into the pot at once? I I think it's, um, it's the kind of person she is. You know, she is very determined and, you know, she did seem to be committed to doing things that the country felt like it, it needed. Um, I, the problem is that uh, it was rushed out too quickly. I think we can all see that now, Um It was bungled in terms of the way the ground was prepared. People weren't ready for the arguments. Everybody got spooked. There were one or two things in it that probably shouldn't have been in it. And then her opponent seized the moment. You know, there is another world with a united Conservative Party, no friction between the bank and the government, where these things are managed. That is sort of political normality. Unfortunately, we don't have political normality. Her opponent saw their chance, and she U-turned. And once the first U-turn had been done... Uh, that was that because you always knew another one was possible, and we are where we are now. And how long will she last? I, I mean, looking at what's happened tonight in the Commons, uh, one got to feel that um, things can't last last very long. I, I mean, obviously she has to go. You can't be chosen on one prospectus and then implement another. It's just not possible. It's not legitimate in our system. She she has to go. <laughs> Um, as long as she's there, she's a sort of puppet of forces that don't Best it them. were done quickly? To I, 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 I think so, I think so. You know, the Conservative Party... I love how my quote Shakespeare <laughs> The party's having a I quoted breakdown. that in
2: my column this week. you just nicked it. I, I never read your column. <laughs> <laughs> David, is there any... Tr- I mean, obviously we can see these factions now, you know... Quite ignoble behaviour, I think. Look, I don't think she's done everything right, but I looked on her, I felt really sorry for her. She's got two teenage daughters. It must be absolutely grim, mustn't it? So so upsetting, and to, for such an ambitious woman to know that she's going to be the shortest-serving mm. British prime minister. I believe George Canning is currently holds the record
3: with a hundred well, We did dub her the Lady Jane Grey of British politics. <laughs> we, <did. laughs> <It's laughs> we
2: did. We did. It's our fault. So looking at the options. <laughs> about whether, A, is there a, a Remainer Sunak coup? Is that just sour grapes? And do you see any possibility of them parachuting someone in or do you think it has to be a general election or will they fight that to the bitter end, do you think?
0: I, I, it's really difficult to tell. I, it has felt a bit like... Uh... Uh, a coup. I mean, I use the word kind of hesitantly. I must admit. Although, at least when you have a real coup, when the generals take over, they um, you get some spending on the military and you get the demonstrators off the streets. Yes, and we, exactly. we don't even seem to be able to do that. Um, but. Uh, there is a very narrow way through. I mean, I, I did actually agree with what you said this, this morning. I think there is a narrow way through where a a, a sort of a figure is, is found who can reach out to different bits of the party yeah. and provide a minimal programme and try and stabilise. When I look at the way things are, I think that is quite unlikely. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. could happen. But it, it looks a terrible mess and... Uh, if you are implementing a policy that is not the manifesto and isn't the policy you elected on, then you are right at the edge of legitimacy, in my yeah. view. I think our system has an election as the sort of cleansing mechanism when these mm. things happen, as in 2019, and we're well, you, we are very close to. You them.
2: know, I uh, I know you didn't agree, didn't think Penny Mordaunt was the right person. Now I
0: here it comes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So no, listeners and I readers,
2: crazy. normally I'm in tune with people, I got a lot of flack, perhaps rightly so, from readers and listeners for backing Penny, who they all think is far too woke, but I was thinking ahead to the general election, and I st- I felt and I still feel that Penny could reach the red wall and could keep the sort of tibetan and honiton lib dem conservatives on on board that was that was my main concern was survival i wasn't actually her politics as as you know and not mine but i'm now thinking i'm actually thinking now we need a new party of the right actually i do think that.
0: I think, I mean, our system—it it makes it difficult for new yeah. parties to get established. Yeah. And the Conservative Party has, you know, has strength in the country. It's got organisation. It's got people who work for it. It's got everything that makes. Well, not,
2: that any, makes... not, not anymore. Well, uh, that will be
0: an interesting question. <laughs> they're all so very—they're
2: all very cross now. When I,
0: I've, I've spoken at a lot of associations yeah. recently, and yeah. the mood is going, going you know, down. down fast. Yeah. But it yeah. still takes a lot to knock, yes, um, yes. Uh, 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 you know, a party out of existence. And I'm not sure it's the right thing. I I I resent the fact that the party's been captured by people who don't seem to believe a lot of what I thought it believed.
2: Exactly, exactly. I I don't know why people like us should evacuate the Conservative Party, which is the Conservative Party, leaving behind the people who really should be in the Liberal Democrats. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely.
3: Tell us a little bit about you, David, and what you think you can bring to uh. public life I think everybody knows here um, that you you do want to make a contribution I think a lot of people in the room and listening would like you to make a contribution. I recently read your stepping stones paper um, which I think was a very serious contribution uh, uh, to, to the debate um, uh, you deliberately took the name from uh, Keith Joseph and mm. somebody yeah, else Dome who hel- who, helped yeah. to rec- who helped to who helped to Um, rescue the Conservative Party after many years in the wilderness in the eyes of many people. So tell us a little bit about your background and what in your background makes you want to make this contribution given that you started life as a, you know, your career, you were a very, very successful civil servant and then you decided it's very, very rare for a career civil servant and you're an ambassador to think, okay, I'm going to actually switch sides and become a frontline politician. That's a really big step. What in you made you take, take that step?
0: So I, I sort of drifted into it, really, I suppose. I was a civil servant. Do, and, <laughs> yeah, a civil servant, diplomat. You know, I, I got frustrated with never being able to say what I thought about things, which is why I, I left. And then, you know, good luck with, with Boris. And, you know, I turned out, I think, to be the right person at the right time on Brexit. You know, I'd, I'd spent 20 years, 30 years working on Europe. I knew how the system worked. Um, and I believed in Brexit. And you know, there were not too many people around who who did that. So I got lucky. You know, I didn't expect to, to end up as a minister. I didn't expect to end up in the House of Lords. This, these things uh, kind of happen by chance. But I think what I am is... Um, an expert in government. I've been in government for 30 years. I know how it works. There's a lot of things in government that do not work well. And when we've got a government that has a bunch of ministers that could do their job right, they still need the government machine to work right. And at the moment, it isn't. And Covid was a good case. If,
3: it, if I may say so, having watched you from afar and having known you for a while, I think what you combine, and this is rare, you have a really good grasp of technical policy detail, but you can also, at, in the same breath, see the big picture. And very few people can can do both those things. So it must be frustrating for you um, what's happening for to, to the party um, because you know, it, it means that you're less likely to be able to be on the political and policy-making and law-making front line.
0: I mean, it probably does. Let's see how things... Mm. Turn out it is frustrating because I think it's uh, you know it's just awful for the country that this is happening. Um, we've had you know Brexit is such an opportunity, all of a sudden, you know, we've got democracy back, we've got the ability to run our own affairs, we've got everything that comes with that, and um, which takes me back to my yeah. question you've been mulling. Well, to uh, answer it could we yeah, lose it? The uh, Brexit was about giving. Us the power to do things ourselves and to give responsibility back to British ministers and British government, and it's not, you know, they've shown that many of them are not up to the job in the last uh, <laughs> uh, year or two. But it's going to change. I think, um, yeah, it could be lost. I think um, there are circumstances when it could be lost if you Labour back into the
3: single market, back into Labour the get in. Junior, yeah,
0: um, you really think that could happen? Yes. over time, over time, i mean I, I, it can 't just happen overnight. there has to be another referendum there has to be everything that goes with it but but I can easily see, see a situation where Keir gets in. Um, we drift back closer into the single market. We go back into the customs union, and everyone then says, "Well, why are we in these things? But well, we don't get a say in them. Wouldn't it be better to be a member?" So I can easily see how it's happening, and the way you stopped it happening was to prove, while well, we have the levers of power, that we can do things differently and better and at the moment we're not making a very good job of that unfortunately
2: there's been um there's been recently uh there's been recently a lot of brexit revisionism already people saying look what you know even in our own beloved uh paper saying oh see how badly it's turned out but i was quite interested people will have heard uh kate bingham talking about her you know how boris gave her you know free reign to go out and seek seek the vaccines and bring them in quickly and so on. And and essentially, the EU completely cocked up their their vaccine yeah. uh, they were you know leaden-footed uh, bureaucratic not getting things done whereas we because we we would have been with them wouldn't we actually hog-tied to them and I thought that was a really good example of where the UK could op- operate on its own and, and get and we got in first didn't we with lots of things
0: it's a really good example and um, it shows actually what tends to happen in the uh, one of the reasons why government doesn't work well is that what tends to happen in government is when you've got something really important you don't use the existing machine. You create a new bit of it and work around what exists. Yeah. And um, the vaccine was a good example of that, where it brought in people, put together with clever civil servants and politicians, got it to happen. Similarly, my Brexit negotiating team was the same kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it, it proves you get the right people together, you get the sense of purpose, you can deliver really quickly when people really want it. It's just that we accept mediocrity too much of the time.
3: Mm-hmm. well david frost lord frost we're on behalf of alison and i um and indeed the audience here and, and listening at home on catch up uh, i'd like to thank you for coming this evening it means the world to working. us seriously that that it influenced you i do think your resignation was significant and influential
2: saved christmas and
3: changed things mm. so on behalf of all of us here and at home we thank you very much indeed thank you
2: David could be Prime Minister, listen to that. We're now delighted to welcome our second guest, Lionel Shriver, is quite simply one of our best writers and most stimulating and entertaining minds. She's published 12 novels, including So Much for That and The Mandibles, which I think I reviewed. In 2005, Lionel won the Orange Prize for her international bestseller, We Need to Talk About Kevin, a prophetic tale about a disturbed boy who commits mass murder at a high school, subsequently made into a film. Lionel was born in North Carolina and maintains her American citizenship, although she has more than earned her status as an honorary Brit. You will know her also for her terrific weekly column in The Spectator where she frequently has me and legions of fans shouting yes, that's exactly right. Uh, um, Lionel Shriver has just published this terrific book, Abominations, and um, Selected Essays from a Career of Courting (laughs) (laughs) Self-Destruction, something co-pilot Halligan and I have in common with her. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the fantastic Lionel Shriver. Welcome, welcome. I'm going to... I devoured these essays. I was on a long train journey to Wales, and sometimes fierce honesty can be incredibly comforting. Um, but I, um, I just want to read a tiny bit to you from your own introduction. It should be familiar. Uh, Lionel wrote, I've been warned that my parallel non-fiction career has probably done my reputation as a fiction writer no favours, especially since my opinions often lie several bricks wide of the Overton window, but it's too late for regrets. The fact that Shriver supported Brexit, dislikes affirmative action, opposes lockdowns for the suppression of disease, abhors soaring national debts, defends free, free speech even when people use it to say something. Unpleasant and resists uncontrolled mass immigration is already lodged in the public record. Our new Home Secretary, listen to this. <laughs> Readers who don't share these views could credibly enjoy my novels, which I hope don't err on the polemical side, as they might also appreciate large sections of this collection that address other matters. Still, I don't apologise for these positions, especially. As the preponderance of my literary colleagues lean far to the political left and the world of letters could sorely use counterbalance. Now, that's something. <laughs> you are a bit of. I was going to say oddity, but that's rude. Rarity.
0: <laughs>
2: it's pretty unusual. Odd rarity. Odd rarity. <laughs> it's pretty unusual to have a novelist. So you know, unwoke as you. And I'm interested in this because that wasn't always the case. Uh, we think of great novelists, British novelists like Evelyn Waugh, high Tory, nasty piece of work, but a genius. Does this ideological stranglehold the left has on the arts make life difficult for you as an artist? Do you think?
1: Well, so far, far, however weirdly, I think it's playing to my advantage. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean. <laughs> If I came here and I was one more left-wing, labor-supporting, wet, go on. I mean, (laughs) I could go on. (laughs) Why would anyone come? Honestly. (laughs) So yeah, but our lot are weird, so yeah.
3: That's not so, the name of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: normal. That would be a good podcast. Yes, Our <laughs> lot are weird. Planet weird. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think it mean- means that I stand out. Uh, it also means that I mop up on all the normal people uh, yeah. it, it, as readers yeah. who agree with me. I mean, the odd thing about most of my opinions, which, you know, it, in the left-wing context are regarded as... Uh, lunatic and extreme they they represent what most people think.
2: Yeah Yeah. they do absolutely yeah there's there's one very provocative and funny essay um, which Liam would love and David would love actually it's the opening address you gave to the Brisbane Writers Festival in 2016 Um, and among other things you say that when you started writing you didn't hesitate to write black characters and avail yourself of black dialects for which you had a very good ear having grown up in the in the american south but now we have this thing called cultural appropriation whereby you're supposed to stay in your lane not create characters from other ethnic minorities lionel do you ever find yourself censoring yourself now to not stray into that kind of territory in fear of being cancelled
1: Generally, no, but I'm aware of uh, crossing a line that didn't used to be there when I do create characters who are non-white. That's really what we're talking about. And uh, I, I will go ahead and do it if the story calls for it. Mm. But uh, many of my colleagues are now avoiding uh, writing any characters who who, who are not wh- white as as if they are themselves white and i don't understand why this is supposed to represent social progress no no, no absolutely why we have we have now uh, instituted fictional apartheid <laughs> and and so white writers uh, are supposed to Uh, describe the world as if it's still, uh, John Cheever's 1950s Connecticut. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that means that you're writing about a fairy tale and it's also very cowardly and not very interesting. So I, I don't see how anyone wins in that, in that manner. And furthermore, you know, at a certain point you say, okay, uh, so white, white writers are not supposed to write about non white characters, so the non-white writers can't write about white characters either. I mean, that seems only fair. Mm-hmm. So again, you see this where this leads? It's, it's ugly. It's ungenerous. It's piggy. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, you can't have my culture. Yeah. Um, this belongs to me. And it's also kind of mercantile in a creepy way, mm. because a lot of what seems to be motivating the whole uh, the whole mentality is that you want to be able to sell your culture. It is a product mm. which you own the copyright to, and therefore only you can make money off of it. And if you talk to people who really passionately believe in the importance of uh, the to taboo of cultural appropriation, that's really a lot of what it comes down to. You white people have, can't exploit us. This belongs to us, so we get to sell it. And I, it's just not the way I think of literature. I mean, yes, we do sell books, but fundamentally, we're talking about ideas, stories, um, uh, and play, and, and I think this one of the weird things that's going wrong here is that we're taking literature too seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it 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 is supposed to be fun, and you just playful. you yeah, playful. That you you see what you throw things into a story, you see what happens, um, and and now it's now it's all deadly serious. And if you put a step wrong, then you know someone's going to compare it to violence.
2: Yeah that that speech in brisbane got you into hot water you you um this really made me laugh in fact it still makes me laugh you ended lionel ended her address by saying we fiction writers have to preserve the right to wear many hats and you put on a sombrero didn't you (laughs) yes (laughs) now most people in the audience thought that was quite funny and clapped but there was one young woman of Sidonese extraction who walked out and posted an aggrieved blog, which surprisingly got picked up by The Guardian. Shockers! Um, amazing. And the the Brisbane Festival immediately disavowed your embarrassing speech, of which they had been fully aware, and I do particularly love this. The New Republic magazine, people will know it's a a leftish magazine in the United States, ran a story under the wonderful headline, Lionel Shriver should not write about minority characters, and then this is the absolute best bit. Lionel Shriver thinks a sombrero is just a hat. (laughs) (laughs) Lionel, it's a political statement. <laughs> Can you just reflect? What was the fallout from that scandal? Were you what? what did you feel? Well,
1: first off, I, I love that, that headline about, you know, Lionel Shriver thinks a sombrero is just a hat because it doesn't happen very often, but um, for once, a journalist very... had correctly uh-huh. represented my views. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you, you know, you asked me um, how my uh, notoriety... Uh, has affected uh, me and my career, but this is a good example. I mean, y- uh, <clears throat> the fact that I put on a sombrero became an international incident, <laughs> believe it or not, in 2016. And you know, at the end of the day, I I benefited. I am it raised my profile fantastically. Uh, so, you know, I. I I they know who I am in India and Sri Lanka and you know there were articles all over the world. <laughs> sombrero uh, so, lady. Yes, yeah, sombrero lady and there's been some great iconography that's come out of it like cartoons and um the weekly standard had a had a cover story on me with with me wearing a a sombrero and sitting on the top of a pile of canceled books. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I've greatly benefited from this. And I'd like to express my gratitude to all those, (laughs) all those left wing
2: journalists. You describe yourself as a, life, a lifelong Democrat in the States, but you, over here you say you're regarded as a, a right-wing nut job. but immediately you get over back to the States, you're progressive. You said, when I was growing up, the conservatives were the voice of oppression, conformity, and orthodoxy. Now the role of oppressor has passed to the left, a truly strange, a strange thing. Um, and you also say that the tyranny of the shrill goofball left gave rise to Trump. Is is that part of the backlash? Do you think in the end people will only take so much of this nonsense before they just won't vote for
1: people who support it? Well, yeah, it does backfire. I mean, it backfires on a popular level, but the frustration right now is that while I think that a lot of the hard left uh, positions are completely misrepresentative of w- what what most people believe mm-hmm. they are in positions of power and have a huge amount of control over institutions in both the UK and the US mm-hmm. it sounds like you know it's all it's it's western wide it's especially in fact it's How mostly the anglosphere How and i do not know I, these people are not why don't we stop it they are not capable of of mm-hmm. of a, a, Coordinated conspiracy, but it it has something to do with the fact that the, the that these people are the products of universities, and this stuff started in universities. Yeah. And that's the only explanation I've got. But I do not understand why. What is really about ten percent of the the population politically is controlling everything, and I'm afraid that also includes the civil service in the UK.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And vast swathes of the media and then the corporate world and they have to genuflect and then the people controlling the the language, controlling this agenda, they have money behind them. You have corporates that are scared not to pay lip service to this stuff and then it's impossible Mm. not to do it because the bottom line dictates that you must your fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders means that you align yourself with this stuff otherwise you'll lose contracts this is madness
1: but what we got what we have therefore is a kind of fake Culture. This, this is what this is regarded as our culture right now, right? Mm. We're obsessed with transgenderism, and um, we see race and racism everywhere. Well, that's not really true of most people, but it's kind of pasted on top, mm. and it's pasted on top by people who control a lot of our communications. You know, obviously, what's what's on the television news, what's in the newspaper, uh, what's on what's online, and. and It's. I try to fight back. You do too. Uh, I think that there's an obligation of ordinary people, these news consumers, to realize this is this is not representing you well, and it is possible to push back yourself among your friends and your family and not buy this stuff and stick up for common sense.
2: And that was a great yeah. And that was a great, that was a great motivating factor for us, wasn't it? Uh, setting up the podcast. Well, that and vanity. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's you. He actually said, do you remember that ill-fated... It's ironic. Taxi, drive, ...taxi ride back from some Brexit dinner? I'd had, I'd had too many gin and tonics, and he kept saying, let's do a podcast. I had no idea what it was. I literally didn't know what it was. But je suis in podcast now, aren't I? I am a, I am a podcast. Um, We've talked a lot, haven't you? You and I, we're all on the same page about COVID, but specifically the lockdown. You've written very powerfully, Lionel, about the sudden descent descent of Western society. Um, Now that we're sort of out the other side, what what stays with you and what shocked you most, do you think?
1: Uh, Certainly the most powerful residue for me is political that uh, it turns out that liberal democracy is neither liberal nor democratic necessarily, (laughs) and that everything that we take for granted as our rights, are privileges, granted us only if we're very good. Mm -hmm. And as we've discussed, I mean, I come out the other side much more cynical, more pessimistic about the future, uh, more conscious of the fragility of our p- political structures, mm. which I suppose right now seems more obvious than usual. <laughs> but um, you know, before the pandemic, I wasn't especially anxious about um, about the United States or the United Kingdom. Of falling into tyranny, and I, I even uh, regarded the United States as having survived Trump, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that I, I, I was never really anxious. Democrats right now are all really big on promoting, you know, democracy under threat. But I was never actively uh, worried that we were going to suddenly have a dictatorship. Now, on the other side of COVID. Uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, and, uh, Shows you how easily people can be swayed. It, taken
3: it, in with we now, We
1: now have...
3: Highly educated people who see themselves as good people.
1: Who immediately, uh, you know... Capitulate. Literally overnight... Yeah. Uh, decided that uh, anyone who left their house was a, a killer. Yeah. <laughs> it took nothing. <laughs> Did you lose friends in lockdown, Um, or people
3: you thought were your friends?
1: I lost one I thought good friend over that and and other things, a package of things. But you know these people; you have to you have to agree on everything Mm. or. Or they don't get on with. But what it.
2: we're not, what we're not saying, actually, and we have a fantastic writer in the audience tonight, Laura Dodsworth, big fan of yours, who wrote a fantastic book. Yeah. The admiration is mutual. The admiration is mutual, Laura Dodsworth, and Laura wrote a great book called State of Fear, and it was about the uh, the techniques yeah. that we use, particularly by the Nudge Unit and others. There was a very early memo from that unit or Spy B, which was basically saying people don't, uh, haven't got sufficient sense of personal fear. Yeah. We need to exacerbate that. Let's so I,
3: ramp, ramp up the panic.
2: Let's ramp up the panic. And one of the things we were able to do, obviously, on the podcast was try and steady people mm. with just plain facts from, from George Context. and others. So I don't... I don't uh, judge anybody. In fact, I was thinking back to a particular moment in the lockdown and I was going for a dog walk and driving the dog to a woods where I used to walk, and I remember getting to this roundabout and thinking, am I allowed to do this? Mm -hmm. And then I caught myself thinking, Mm. you're going to walk the dog on your own, in a wood, and you are seriously asking yourself if that's permitted. Right. So many of us had internalized it. I I, I don't claim to be any uh, brave exception to that rule.
1: Yeah, you? and I'm sure I'm not the only one who just on on the way to the supermarket just to run into a shop, constantly afflicted by this sudden worry. It's like, oh, don't... Isn't there something I'm supposed to have with me or or I won't be let in? Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's yeah. like, Ugh. and and also, I'm constantly coming across these disgusting masks. They're everywhere. <laughs> they're in every pocket, they're everywhere. And I and I have this outsized sense of revulsion every time I encounter one of them. <laughs> And
3: yet the terms of the public inquiry are incredibly narrow. There are people mobilizing and plotting and scheming. And this could... Alison said we're, we're through it, but we may not be, right? I mean, this could come back.
1: It could easily come back. I mean, if there were some total guarantee that this would never happen again, then I suppose... It wouldn't mean as much to all of us, but that's what we're really anxious about yeah. is that yeah. we have established a new protocol. Yeah, And I mean, we established that protocol really quickly so that even by the second lockdown in, in the, that November, yeah. it was like, oh, here we go, another lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> We'd never had lockdowns before outside of prisons. Uh. <laughs> And suddenly it was just, you know, oh, yeah, that routine. <laughs> so people people adapt very rapidly. And now now it's just understood that if you have a disease which is contagious, then one of the things you at least consider is making everybody stay home for months.
3: Can I just put a thought on the table? The reason we had lockdown, the reason it was... Affordable was because the Bank of England and other leading central banks were printing money like crazy. If there's one good thing to come out of the current market turmoil, is that may not you be possible. You can't do that. That might not be possible. That's right. Again. not
1: afford it. Although, although that that causality mm. is not sufficiently established. Yeah, yeah. There are plenty yeah, of people still try. like still you try. and me yeah. who point that out. But there are other there are other people who are going around saying it's Brexit,
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: which is utter rubbish, yeah, of course. but very popular, especially internationally. All the current, all what they do, sorry, is they, uh, Liam was referring to
2: the public inquiry. So I looked through at the core participants and it's all uh,
1: COVID bereavement group, you know, Wales COVID bereavement group. Why didn't you bring, in, bring it in a week earlier?
2: Yeah, that, that. there are very few representatives from people, you know, bereavement group of the... Professor Pat Price told us on Planet Normal yeah. there are 80,000 lost cancer patients. Yeah. Where is the representation? Right, the collateral or damage. The collateral Or the people from damage. the Great
3: Barrington Declaration yes, side of the debate. Yeah. I
2: mean,
3: why isn't the public inquiry the, 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 the core theme what we do if this happens again? Do we have shielded lockdown as the likes of Schnittragupta, yeah. Martin Koldorf and, and Jay Bhattacharya were, were arguing? And that's nowhere within the terms of reference. And that position is still seen by many people across our policy-making establishment as nuts. But they Which are, is crazy, because they've been proven right.
2: They are very quietly, very softly, softly, a little bit of recantation, but something that... Um, Uh, we're seeing in hospitals which George has been telling me about at the moment today there are 13,500 hospital patients ready to be discharged They can't be discharged because there's no care home place. And there's no care home place because they sacked 40,000 care home workers, many from ethnic minorities, with some historic suspicion of vaccination for quite good reason, uh, because it was made mandatory. We actually have a shout-out to Alan Miller in the audience of Together. Um, uh, Alan is campaigning uh, uh, for the reinstatement of those care home workers who never presented a threat to their charges never never they couldn't they were were no more of a threat than anyone who was vaccinated or unvaccinated
3: just to say for legal reasons because we've cited a statistic from george i have to say so this here we go runs the edit
2: you can join in
3: (laughs) right set the on watch George has seen his source within NHS England with full access to the internal data. We don't disclose his or her identity. We're fully confident of the authenticity of George's statistics and that's why we report them by definition. We can't independently verify these numbers because George gives across <laughs> Before they're published, if they're published at all. There you
2: go. George has always been pretty spot on. Our side of the debate was always more ruthlessly fact-checked. Yep than uh, the uh, other side of the debate.
1: Yes, that's true. For example, nobody does that to CDC statistics no. or no. or uh, no. the UK health statistics. And, you know, we've been relentlessly lied to on um, a, a, a host of things. They never come out and say, er, we're sorry, we got this wrong, you can stop washing your groceries. <laughs> I'm, I'm still doing that. What do you mean? <laughs> and therefore, to to have had any of these vaccine mandates, which are supposed to be protecting everyone else who is vaccinated, is completely insensible. We're terribly sorry. They were illogical. And, and uh, we take all the mean things that we said about the unvaccinated back. No, you never hear that.
3: We're going to move on now to the Q&A session. So where's my BDI going to go? First, I'm going to go over there to the lady with her right hand up.
2: Um, Thank you. Uh, Just a question. I understand that the current government is an absolute mess and Johnson, in comparison, is better. But I... We've just talked for a few minutes about how terrible lockdowns were, terrible the vaccine mandates were, but Johnson is the one that imposed all of that. Johnson's the one that didn't stand up to the media, didn't stand up to the unions, didn't stand up to whoever else, and it shows he had no backbone. I understand it's very hard, but that's what leadership's about.
3: David. Yeah. So, I, I could it have been worse if Boris hadn't have been there?
0: Oh, it definitely could have been worse. There were definitely people round the table arguing for it to be worse. And whatever we think of of Boris, um, I, I still think we. If you look at. Lockdowns across Europe, other parts of the world—they were tougher. We never had to sort of fill in a form to go out of the That's house. Nice, yeah. uh, you know, aspects of it were policed more lightly than elsewhere. I'm not defending. I thought the whole thing was 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 awful, but it could have been worse. And I think some of that was Boris just saying, "We're not having that. We can't do this." It, it, you know, it, he he did have an influence. On I,
2: I would it. also I would also add that you know Liam and I are notionally members of the media, but I'm afraid that once you've got the media you know absolutely ravening when are we closing schools you're not closing schools you're killing people it was really Longer,
3: faster harder it's
2: really hard for any government i think which has got this grain of doubt if they let more people you know if someone can say you killed five thousand more people than was necessary it's a really difficult i i mean you know i wouldn't have wanted to be in that position myself
3: mm. what do you think lionel how did he do
1: um I was unhappy about the fact that he lost his premiership because he broke his own rules by having parties. I would have liked to see him lose his premiership because he passed the rules. So he hasn't really been punished for the right thing in my view.
3: Next question. The mugs are really nice.
1: I, find I get bit- stopped in the street. Oh,
3: can you get me a mug? I don't, the mug. I don't have a question. No. Um, I, I, <laughs> but he's got a 50 quid note.
0: <laughs> I just wanted to say, um, it seems to me that the uh, demise of the Conservative Party started when they decided to disclose the membership. It used to be three million, um, down to a paltry... One hundred and seventy thousand. The parliamentary MPs want to actually remove what uh, what powers they have left. Shouldn't they just completely reinstate the ones they took away uh, some time ago? So, I, I mean, I'm in the party now. Uh, One of my. Strengths and one of my weaknesses is that I'm not a party person. You know, I didn't come up through the Conservative Party. I wasn't able to do things in the party, and I don't, I don't have the same kind of ideological commitment to it as an institution that a lot of people do. And I think it's that that's led us into some of the problems actually of recent, of recent years. Um, I don't think I don't have a strong view, to be honest, on the question you you raise. I think having the membership involved in this vote did provide some sort of minimal um, debate and accountability. And it did ensure that some things were discussed, which I think wouldn't have been discussed if it had only been uh, MPs. So I think, you know, broadly, having the membership involved to the greatest extent possible is
3: is good. But now uh, you, we must think that endless, insufferable weeks of, you know, talking to people out there in, in the party, in, in, in the country, what was it for? It was all meaningless. It's just been completely...
0: Mm -hmm. Reversed. I mean, nobody could have predicted that. I mean, it's just never happened that a prime minister is is chosen on a very clear set of policies after a long debate Mm -hmm. between two different views and then just junks it and implements the other one. I mean, I just think nobody could have imagined that would have happened. So you can't design a system that will deal with it.
2: I think they've been really unfairly blamed the members because they were given this choice of two. Personally, I think they should have been given a choice of four. We might well have ended up with a with a different Prime Minister, but they, talking to them after they'd voted, a lot of them were, you know, they voted for Liz because they were worried that, you know, Rishi had raise taxes to the highest level for 72 years. I don't think the members are to be blamed. In fact, if you look back at the history of choosing uh, Prime Ministers, the members have often done better than yeah. than the MPs. On that
3: bombshell, there's a, there's a young man here in, with uh, a beard.
0: <laughs>
3: As so often happens these days. Um,
0: I'm a millennial. Um, I have a mortgage and a two-year-old child and I recently got married. Uh, that probably makes a minority in this audience um, lionel and david could you tell me if you believe that life is getting better or worse in our society and could you tell me the uh, why uh, whatever your answer is thank you
3: john you start lionel?
1: oh what do you think i'm going to say <laughs> <laughs> um Well, ever since writing uh, The Mandibles in 2016, I have been expecting an international uh, financial collapse. Um, So I guess you could look on the bright side and say, as long as we remain shy of this, everything's fine. (laughs) Um, But I think it looks more likely than ever. One of the weird things about what's been happening here in the last week or two, is that what took the market so long? Oh, and French police cars coming. right? <laughs> it's like Day of the Jackal, you know? <laughs> sorry. 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 What, what took the market so long and why is it only the UK? I mean, government, I'm talking about my, what is nominally my country also, right? That it's um, making up money out of nothing, and uh, spreading bread upon the waters, whereupon it immediately gets soggy. Um, th- they are, th- 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 we are not living in a time of of fiscal responsibility f- with any respect for f- for sound money. You know, it's an old, you know, it's, you, you're supposed that marks you as an old fogey if you care about sound money. Well, now we're we're getting a, a, a peek at what it looks like when money is very, very unsound indeed, and it's ugly stuff, uh, and so I know that it, what we're supposed to be worried about most of all is climate change, but I'm, I'm not very obedient, No, and I'm mostly worried about money.
3: Just before we come to David Frost to answer the, the gentleman's question, which I guess amounts to are today's young adults better off than their parents or not? I just wanted to say in response to what Lionel said, as a, as a financial and economic journalist, I am absolutely flabbergasted and ashamed at how little scrutiny there has been of this mass money printing since 2010. I've personally been derided by the sort of whole FT, Economist set, Mm -hmm. publications I'm both proud to have worked for. To have spoken out and talked about quantitative easing and its drawbacks in the last 10 years is to have been a pariah. And why is that? Because quantitative easing has friends in high places. It makes people with assets wealthy also means governments can borrow very cheaply so they don't have to make very very difficult decisions uh, i'm actually really proud of some of the stuff that i've written for the last 10 years but it's yeah. been tough
0: well i, I agree with that um, just for answering I just want to say um the mandibles is an amazing book and far too um uh, I, I don't see it commented on enough because it, it feels to me like it presents such a compelling and plausible vision of a very horrible future if we don't do something about the trends that we are, we're living in now. And I think that's my answer to your, your question, mm-hmm. is that it, it, if you look at the numbers, it is getting better, but far too slowly compared to what we're used to. It, we're in a you know, not far off a zero growth economy. Everyone is competing for their share of the cake rather than thinking about can we can we change it? And some people are, you know, the benefits are disproportionately going to people over 40, 45 with huge asset price inflation. And we have to get a grip on this Cheap money, low interest rate, uh, a dysfunctional economy. And, you know, to be fair to Liz, that's what she was trying yeah, to do and bungled it. The task still needs to be done. Uh, and it's going to be ev- very difficult, but every year we put it off, it gets worse.
3: Yeah. Last few questions. There's a young lady there who's been very determined and she's now semaphoring me. <laughs> Go on.
2: Hi, so um, I just wanted to say someone who's never gone to university, nor done A-levels or been in media class, but now works in digital and politics, I think it's more important than ever that we bring on board the people who aren't involved in the conversation. How do we all feel about the maybe 50% of people who are completely disengaged with politics who aren't even registered to vote, who's speaking to them? Because it's not the Telegraph, it's not the Daily Mail, it's no-one in this room. How do we reach them and how do we get them involved in the conversation?
3: Good question. David, let me put that to you, because I think I think there's, there's a lot in there, and I fear that the disillusion with politics, which the young lady described so eloquently is about to hit another peak. I see a general election in which a lot of people just spoil their ballot or don't turn
0: out.
2: Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I, you're right. I don't think there's a simple answer to this question, unfortunately. You know, the Brexit vote was the first occasion for a long time when a lot of people came out yeah. and... Um, it really did. And did, did something different and got engaged. And I, I, I worry lots of them will be disappointed. There is also a kind of... Um, disdain for people who you know don't have the credentials and haven't gone through the right processes and um, you know their opinions are somehow worthless and somehow we've crept into this uh, over the years. The you know the global elite is a real thing. I don't mean in a sort of conspiracy this way, but they are there is a bunch of people who write for the FT or they're in governments or they're in business, whatever, they spend all the time talking to each other and travelling around the world. And they don't
3: like they, not getting their own way. No, yeah. they set the tone. They're seriously they the tone. self-entitled people.
2: Well, I would say, in, in answer to your question, I mean, obviously it's only in a small way for the podcast, but some of the best people we've had on have been so-called ordinary people. Yeah. We had Holly, a district nurse, who was... uh, And we need
3: to do more of that. ..going
2: out during uh, the lockdown in full PPE into people's Mm. homes, seeing 12 patients a day. She was breaking down. She said she was calling GPs to come out and help her. Nobody would come out and help her. This was a young woman. We had Brian, the Scottish fisherman, who was one of our
3: favourites. Yeah. (laughs) The triangle toast eaters. (laughs) (laughs) So, Brian, if you're watching...
2: Brian, if you're listening, listen
3: and get back in touch.
2: Yeah, and, and and this isn't said in any condescending way because I come from the I come from some that's where my family is in 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 the social pecking order. And you always, you
1: know, they've always got better opinions, haven't they? I think David is is right to cite Brexit in discussing the the half of the country, if you will, that that you never hear from because that's when we heard from them, and the big revelation of for most of us wasn't simply that half the country didn't want to be in the EU, a little over half, we should remember. Um, But what utter contempt the other under half has for that sector of the country. Mm -hmm. I mean...
3: There were were decent reasons to be on either side of this vote. A lot of people were... I was very much on, on, on the one hand, on the other person. Where I became RC was when people tried to reverse the vote. That really got on my nerves. Um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I thought it would be astonishingly counterproductive for my country. And that mattered. Implementing the vote mattered a lot more than you know, the particular policies that the vote would either deliver or, or, or not deliver. But just to, to, to Lionel's point... I actually think that the vast majority of people who voted Remain were like, "Oh, okay, I lost. Let's let's now make the best of it." Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd say there are about five or ten percent of the population, so about a fit, uh, just under a fifth at most of the Remain voters who were really angry about it. And the problem isn't that there are those irreconciled people. The problem is that they are massively. Disproportionately represented among senior broadcasters and newspaper columnists. Okay, the last question is going to be the gentleman there with, because he's been extremely polite.
0: Oh, I've got a mug. Yes. (laughs) What a wonderful evening you've given us. If it's the last question, Uh somebody should say so. Thank you all so much.
3: Old school. I'm a bit of old school.
0: I do actually have a question. (laughs) Uh, One of the things we haven't touched on, I think, this evening is a major contributor to the god-awful mess we're in, which is the rush to net zero. Mm. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And the general climate hysteria. Perhaps you agree or disagree with that contention, but if you do agree with it, is there any prospect of escaping... First, David. Well, David I, Frost. I, 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 I'm not a climate scientist. I don't go into that. I do, but I do believe we're not in a climate emergency. We obviously aren't. If you look at. It. if you look at observed behavior even of the the climate activists it's clear they don't really think that um i, I think that we are rushing to net zero far far too fast with technologies that cannot yeah. do the job um, and that's one reason why we are you know facing the prospect of blackouts this this winter it is another of these group think things where it's impossible to challenge it it's impossible to say maybe we should go about this in a different way and we're just heading to another. Another, another big, big problem if we don't deal with it.
2: Absolutely
3: yeah. Just before we met, Boris seemed to completely swallow this stuff. Was he influenced
0: <laughs> on, on, the, on,
3: on the domestic front at all? Well?
0: <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. I, 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 I certainly had no influence in him on that subject. <laughs>
1: Um, I think that the commitment to net zero is a catastrophe and is not supported necessarily by the science. Uh, And in some ways, what's happening with the Ukrainian war is, well, it's hard to look at it this way, but lucky because it's um, speeding up the rate at which we have to recognize that the, uh, this, this net zero thing is, is pragmatically impossible. Um, it, it, it has not been prepared for. We, are, we cannot run on exclusively on windmills. We are still no. dependent huh. on fossil fuels. Um, and to watch the dysfunction in reality is really curative of all these kind of uh, uh, boutique-y convictions, um, which have nothing to do with real life. I mean, real life is is a curative for this condition.
0: Yeah. George, George Orwell says... Yeah. <laughs> Orwell says, I forget why, he says, there are, there are some things that are so stupid that only an intellectual can believe them. <laughs> this, is a, this is a good example.
2: There's a great Orwell essay, actually. I would recommend to anyone who's got teenagers, uh, George Orwell's selected essays. There's a wonderful essay called Down the Mine. My beloved late grandfather was a, was a coal miner, and it begins with that coal miners. He describes the mine, and he says they are the caryatids, these working men on whom everything, popes can speak, symphonies can be composed, mm. people can go to school, normal life can go on, because it's carried on the backs of these extraordinary people. Now, I do think it makes sense to go to move towards cleaner, greener energy and to be developing our technology. What strikes me is what we are come up against so much on Planet Normal, dreadful institutional short-termism. Mm. We know that we uh, we actually just, Liam told me we, we destroyed our gas storage in 2017, didn't we? The rough gas storage, which would have been giving us a bit of a cushion during this period. I've been hearing from Planet Normal listeners, very, very educated. Uh, people who've worked uh, worked in energy and worked in nuclear. Apparently we were world leaders David in nuclear. We had thousands of nuclear scientists. We should have been developing a nuclear program but above all as Lionel says it's going to be the ordinary person who, you know, it's not going to be the people flying to Davos and back who are going to be set. You know, you all see those pictures, don't you, with them, their 147 private jets where they turn up to discuss how other people can can cut back on, you know, and let's all eat beetles and kind of live sit, sit in the dark. So, it's, yeah, so, yeah, no, I'm cross about it.
3: <laughs> now, we haven't... We're over time, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't had uh, listeners' emails uh, uh, this week because we've had your your questions, uh, and we will have more next week. But I'm going to read out just one listener email to to end before we we just finish off. there are various people who have started writing poems to Planet Normal. At least one of them is called Bob. In no, fact, there are two Bobs. There are
2: two Bobs. It's got very, very difficult because we said Bob the Bard, the Planet yeah. Normal Bard, yeah. and then someone wrote in and said, "Hang on, I'm Bob the Planet Normal yeah. Bard." But at least
3: one of the Bobs, Bob, isn't his real name. No. So Bob it's is actually
2: like the, the you know uh, Ben Johnson and William Shakespeare overlap. <laughs> so it's,
3: it's
2: really like this very tough competition now.
3: But I, I'm going to read, read read this out. There are several phrases that we've spawned during Planet Normal that are dear to us, um, um, like triangle toast eaters, uh, like the rocket of right thinking, and like... Um, Sinatra. Sinatra's wonderful phrase, orthogonal to the orthodoxy. <laughs> because we are orthogonal to the orthodoxy. We are, we are. Uh, and so Bob, not his real name, has written a poem for us especially for this evening, called Orthogonal to the Orthodoxy, an ode to planet normal. It's that time of the week again to hear our favourite show, starting with its countdown and that wonderful... Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Alison and Liam, co-pilots for the hour, begin their latest mission of speaking truth to power. They boldly go in search of facts. All topics are explored... They give a voice to points of view that often get ignored. They share their wisdom with us, for they're both highly trained. (laughs) From gnomes of Zurich to nosocomial, all jargon is explained. (laughs) The rocket of right thinking carries other people too. A stellar cast of stowaways conversing with the crew. And don't forget the rocket fuel on which the flight depends, distilled from listeners' messages... A very special blend. So I propose we make a toast and not the triangle kind (laughs) to the podcast Planet Normal, the finest you will find. On that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. No email of the week, as we've just had live questions instead. Uh, And the only email we did read out was Bob's poem, and he's already a ploughed Planet Normal (laughs) mug holder. And Planet Normal mugs are a bit like space hoppers. You can only hold one at a time.
2: (laughs) 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 you enjoy planet normal which we guess you must really because you've come here uh please do leave us a rating and a review on apple Podcasts or spotify even i've been able to do that it really helps others to find the podcast so this
3: fantastic planet normal family can grow keep those emails keep those emails coming in we'll have a bumper crop Uh, next week they are the lifeblood of the podcast and as so many of your ideas and insights end up in the columns of my esteemed co-pilot all artists theft said Pablo Picasso except that he didn't it was a misquote the real author of that timeless observation was actually Alison Pearson
2: (laughs) (laughs) what do I always say to you immature artists borrow mature artists steal isn't that right Lionel Shriver Um, when are we saying this we know yes we we will we will we will um Liam and I would like to thank most sincerely all our fabulous Planet Normal stowaways over the last 120 episodes. What a range of people. We've learnt so much from them, in particular Lord David Frost and Lionel Shriver, who have joined us so wonderfully in person here tonight.
3: And Lionel's wonderful book, Abominations, is on sale, is on sale now. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back to interview, thanks as ever... To our producers, Isabel Bujard, who is here with us. Yay! The fabulous Louisa Wells, so important as we started Planet Normal, who is here with us. Elliot Lampitt, we're not sure if he really exists, no. <laughs> but he does clever things with the tech and, of course, our editor, No Hitch, with Zoe Hitch. And we also want to thank tonight the superb Te- Telegraph events team who've worked so hard to get us to this stage and, uh, and, and to put on this latest edition of Planet Normal Live. They are Lanra Kerrigan, Laura Hill, Jade Clark and Daisy Bevin. Thanks to Yay, all of them. Thank you. <laughs> So stay safe in touch with each other and with us. Until next week, it is goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him.
0: (laughs) ACAST powers the world's best podcasts.
3: Here's a show that we recommend.